What I'd like to talk about this evening is compassion. This journey is founded upon the, the twin pillars of wisdom and compassion. In the Buddhist tradition, these two qualities are um, likened to being the two wings of a bird. They balance each other, they complement each other, and they nourish each other. And that they cannot actually be divorced from each other. In one of the Buddhist sutras, that kind of intermarriage is expressed by saying, one who clings to the void and neglects compassion will not reach the highest awakening. The one who practices only compassion does not gain release from suffering. It came as some surprise to me in my own practice and my own experience in meditation to understand that actually it was possible to cultivate wisdom without compassion. I had assumed that these two automatically would go together, that if you developed in insight, you would most likely also deepen in compassion. And it came as quite a revelation to me to see that for different reasons that these two could be divorced from each other. And I think what can, of course, happen is that because meditation um, is often so much concerned or initially directed towards our inner experience, and because that can become so interesting, um, you know, there's, there's so much going on and there's so much to see and so much to understand and there's so much subtlety within our inner dynamics that of course it can become quite absorbing. You know, there's always some new revelation, some, some new encounter, some new phenomena to look at. And of course it's a very, it's a very short step, I, I think, probably from that inner absorption to self-interest. To really be um, very, very much uh, concerned with, um, you know, my insight and renouncing this and cultivating this and, you know, going through this and then gaining this and understanding this about myself. And of course, this, this self-interest in itself is a kind of contraction of the mind. In a way, it can be quite isolating. So in that exploration, and this is something which is very important to balance, to balance in our own journeys, to balance in our own seeing. Um, what can happen, of course, is the mind can actually be overflowing with insight. It can have fantastic revelations and in a very profound insight. But somehow it is very concerned with myself. It's very concerned with myself. And of course, you've all seen the, the 
the dangers that can happen through that self-concern because then there comes to be so much investment inwardly about basically my uh, state of inner polish, you know, whether I'm getting somewhere and letting go of things or whether I'm accumulating more. There tends to be part of that self-interest tends to be this kind of measuring inwardly and a great deal of investment often often very unconscious investment in very altruistic goals about how much I can let go of or how much I can see through, how much I can cultivate. But it is very important to see the subtlety of that kind of self-interest and the way in which it is in itself a kind of contraction. What happens in that isolation that can come through that, although it's a very enlightened kind of isolation, it can be a very wise kind of isolation, it is still isolation, it is still separation. And the quality that often seems to be lacking in that inner absorption is any real vision of interconnectedness. And often, too, what is lacking is the impersonality, or perhaps a better way of saying it, is the universality of those inner dynamics. That they are not me, that they are not mine. That there is a certain universal characteristic to these inner dynamics that we can lose sight of when we get very, of course, absorbed in you know, my own exploration. Sometimes this insight that is not really rooted upon a vision of interconnectedness, it may be personally very enlightening, but it may also be lacking in heart. It may also be lacking um, in the real power of transformation. Now, what happens that when, sometimes in that scene inwardly, we can develop a great deal of detachment to our own inner unfoldment. But that detachment, when it isn't a loving detachment, when it is not balanced by love, it often doesn't really heal inwardly. Instead, it carries this very subtle measure of judgment. That yes, I feel removed or not so caught up in my inner processes. But the detachment in itself can be a way of protecting from those inner processes rather than an embracing, rather than a caring, rather than an embracing that is really motivated by healing. So then what happens is this kind of this kind of detachment that is not really founded in love, it, it tends not to really touch our hearts. And what the worst thing that can happen with it is it can become a kind of spiritual invincibility that we perceive the perhaps emptiness of processes within ourselves or we perceive the, inv- the emptiness of of dynamics within our own being, but we kind of take refuge in detachment. 
So this is not me, this is not mine. This is empty, it has nothing to do with me. And yet it is interesting to see that detachment that is a kind of spiritual invincibility is very rarely expressed in one's life. And this is why, you know, sometimes you have really enlightened people whose lives are absolute mess. You know, or really wise people who, you know, really have incredible insights, you know, and yet his life may be filled with tackiness and, and, and confusion and, you know, uh, unethical behavior or just a real lack of, of care. It's very important to see that insight that leads us into withdrawal is actually not liberating insight. It's kind of knowing, but it's not liberating insight. It may we may have lots of solutions and answers about, you know, be really wise about having good advice for other people, you know, because we've seen it all in ourselves. Oh yes, I know grasping and this is why it's caused and this is the result. And all you need to do is let go. You know, we could you know, go go through the towns and the streets filled with solutions for suffering. And yet, somehow, we don't have any listeners. And I think the reason that that is, is that insight that is not really balanced by compassion actually really has no empathy. It's not really based upon interconnectedness. Is that, that mystic one said, of what avail, of what use is the open eye if the heart is blind? What compassion does for wisdom is that it brings it to life. It gives it power. Compassion gives insight power, the power to touch, the power to transform, the power to make visible in our world the understandings that grow within us. But it's equally true to say, I think, that compassion needs wisdom. We may have experienced what it's like to have a very open heart, an enormous sensitivity where we feel deeply touched by sorrow in the world, by suffering, where our heart breaks over the amount of pain there is, and yet we feel paralyzed. We feel paralyzed or overwhelmed or, or overpowered or, or just simply lost, unable to respond in a way in which we feel is effective. And what insight actually brings to compassion is both courage and equanimity. That through wisdom, compassion also finds the right words, the right directions, the right applications. The other aspect of wisdom in its relationship to compassion is that the primary purpose of insight is to dissolve separation inwardly and outwardly, to dissolve the separations between I and you and us and them and inner and outer, to dissolve those separations through wisdom is also to dissolve the value judgments that almost inevitably shadow separation, because when there is compassion with separation, often the mind interferes. And it says, well, 
you know, this person's really worthy of compassion, whereas look at that schmuck, you know, they don't deserve any compassion, they're bringing it on themselves, you know. This is a kind of, this would be a sort of, this person's inferior or undeserving, this person is really superior. The other thing when there is separation, of course, is the feeling that compassion is some sort of prescription that we apply to suffering, that it's sort of my response to your suffering, or it's my response even that I direct inwardly to myself. And in all of those kind of feelings, this feeling that, you know, I'm going to extend compassion, they, they are themselves, I mean, they may be very totally well-intentioned, they may be very valuable, they may be very worthwhile, but they are, may also be carrying with them the trace of separation in which the mind so easily distorts the compassion that's available. And can say, in a way, that compassion is purified through wisdom. That compassion is made very immediate and very direct to seeing the end of separation. So that compassion is a very total movement of heart and mind that embraces suffering, that embraces pain, that embraces difficulty wherever it is found without any thought of or without any demand for results. Now, in traveling this path, I think it is incredibly important not to think of compassion as some sort of incidental or desirable reward that will come to us after we've developed sufficient wisdom. Also, I think it's important not to think of wisdom as some destination, some lofty destination that we will arrive at in the future after we've suffered enough or had enough pain. It is easy to think of both wisdom and compassion as kind of headline statements, underlined, that are somehow separate. And every time we do that, then of course we do separate them from ourselves. And perhaps neglect to ask what wisdom and compassion actually mean to us in this moment, the ways in which we might live them, the ways in which we might care for them. Sometimes, too, because they are kind of powerful words, wisdom and compassion, we, we might also be tempted to sort of dress them up in very kind of elaborate images, you know, we think of the Buddha, we think of Jesus, we think of Zen masters, we think of people in spiritual uniforms, you know, the variety of authorities who have impressed us in our lives. And sometimes when we think of compassion, we think of, you know, very kind of heroic and noble gestures. We've heard of the great sacrifices of the Bodhisattvas. We hear stories of people like Mother Teresa, people who are endlessly forgiving, and we think, well, that's who I need to be. I need to be like that. I need to be like that person. And of course, that might seem so impossible that we kind of resign ourselves to projecting wisdom and compassion into images separate and apart from who we are. In the Buddhist tradition, <coughs> to travel the path of compassion, it is called the Bodhisattva path. 
Nadari Satsa is one who dedicates themselves to the liberation and the freedom of all beings. The consciousness that is infused with this aspiration to bring about the freedom of all beings is called the the mind that's infused with that aspiration is called the mind of enlightenment or bodhicitta. In the Bodhisattva path, which is presented as a very particular path, really no distinction is made between wisdom and compassion, because to be truly awake is to be sensitive, to really be dedicated to seeing the end of clinging, the end of division, is to be open, to be spacious, to be compassionate. But the Bodhisattva path is always founded upon the end of separation, upon a deep and profound vision of interconnectedness. Now for most people it's quite difficult to think of themselves in the light of being a Bodhisattva. Because our minds can produce a whole catalogue of reasons of why we cannot possibly be a Bodhisattva why we cannot possibly travel that path. We might say, well, look at my actuality. I have so many problems. I have so many difficulties. I've got so much work to do. I have so many things to work out. How can I possibly even begin to think of dedicating myself to the liberation of all beings when I'm not liberated myself? This is the kind of more the usual excuse. <laughs> you know, first I gotta, you know, finish my own work, and then I'll see about others. We might also think, well, actually, this is also impossible. It's impossible for all beings to li- be liberated. I mean, look at this world. You know, dictators, torturers, abusers. You know, uh, you know all these terrible, terrible people in this world. It's impossible for all beings to be liberated when there is so much greed and so much defensiveness. In the realm of logic, of course, these are totally valid objections. The interesting thing, I think, about the spiritual life is it's really not very logical. It's not really a path for people who really demand logic because actually there doesn't really seem to be very much logical unfoldment about it. You know, there's not a kind of linear progression, there's not predictability, you know, you things happen that you don't think would happen, things don't happen that you would like to happen. There doesn't really seem to be anything logical about it. The strategies that worked yesterday are totally failures today. You know, the mind that was at rest yesterday is in total rebellion today. There's nothing very logical about this path at all. And the other thing about this path is, of course, that it asks all of us to be total idealists. And this is also interesting. It asks us to put aside all our kind of objections. It does actually put, ask us to put aside all our objections. I mean, most people, when they begin a retreat, you know, they, they begin with all these objections about why they can't do it, you know. 
you know, I've got this kind of mind and this kind of body, you know, and this sort of problem and that sort of history, you know. And actually we're all asked, basically, when we begin this journey, really to kind of put our objections and our personal histories and all our ideas of kind of linear thinking and, and chronology in a closet and just forget about them. And we are asked to really, in this situation, to develop absolute greatness. That's what meditation asks us to do. Develop absolute greatness. You know, not to be, you know, great speakers and preachers and, you know, goddesses and gods, but to really aspire to greatness of heart, to greatness of mind, to greatness of vision, we are asked actually to do this all the time, you know, and there's not much room in there for objections. You know, they seem somehow not so relevant. So, if we were to put aside our logic and our objections, then we may actually see that all of us are absolutely ripe for the Bodhisattva path. We're all <laughs> right there. If we just do that, we're all actually, that's all we need to do, and we're all right on this path. And we can only be ourselves in this path. It's not a question of aspiring to be a Dalai Lama or aspiring to be a Mother Teresa. They are who they are, and we are who we are. To listen to ourselves. We need to trust in ourselves. We really do need to emphasize that possibility of greatness in our own experience. To trust that wisdom and compassion are not the territories only of saintly or special people, but that we hold the seeds of them in our own hearts, within our own consciousness. Nor is the path of the Bodhisattva only the territory of warriors or the heroic. The path of the Bodhisattva is actually the path of every single human being who cares about love, who cares about forgiveness, who cares about generosity. The path of the Bodhisattva is actually the path of every single human being who yearns for the end of the unendurable kinds of pain and conflict and suffering that shadow our world. The path of the Bodhisattva is actually the path of everyone who genuinely, genuinely cares for the happiness and for the well-being and the freedom of all beings. We don't need any special credentials to travel this path. We don't need to have got rid of all our problems and found all our solutions. This path of compassion is also a path of celebration. Because the path of compassion in being willing to set aside separation and being willing to set aside objections and being willing to set aside logic is actually a celebration of the possibilities that lie within each one of us. Celebrating our own capacities to let go capacities for generosity, for service, for forgiveness. To celebrate these amidst the challenges of our own lives. Now, there is an unfortunate tendency, I have to say, that really does 
part of in most people's experience, to tend to focus and emphasize the unwholesome, the difficult, the problematic. There are very few people who come to interviews speaking about the need to, you know, let go of their compassion, or let go of their metta, or, you know, let go of their happiness or their peace. But instead, there is a tendency, of course, to say, I have, and I am. And usually, what we have and what we are is what we don't like about ourselves. There's a tendency, unfortunately, perhaps because we see so much of it, to focus on the imperfect and all the obstacles that seem to deny liberation. And sometimes it seems that meditation becomes nothing more than an exploration of the bottomless depths of our own personal imperfections. It can be very depressing. This path, actually, of wisdom and compassion doesn't call us to transcend and overcome and renounce these endless imperfections. It actually asks us to see the emptiness of our beliefs in them. We're not asked to become a better person, a more improved version of ourselves, you know, a spiritually more refined version. When we see, you know, when we focus upon imperfection, of course, it seems sort of a sacrilege to think of, imp- of celebration amidst all this misery. Instead, instead, we tend to think more of improvement and self-punishment and denial. But when we do that, when we do that, compassion and wisdom are endlessly postponed because we don't apply them. We don't bring them into the light of our own experience. We see them as somehow stays that are going to come after, after the imperfections, or after the obstacles, or after the difficulties. So what about now? What about with the imperfections? What about with the difficulties? Do we expect that somehow we need to be holy in order to extend compassion, in order to be wise? If we have this relationship inwardly to our difficulties and imperfections and obstacles, then what relationship do we have towards other people's difficulties and imperfections and obstacles? Probably the same one as we have towards ourselves. We're expecting them to sort of pull their socks up and get it together and become more saintly. Where is the wisdom and the compassion in this? Where does it begin? Where does it actually begin? Later or now? There is only one place where wisdom and compassion can be realized, and that is in the moment that we're experiencing and our response to it. How many opportunities in a single day do we have actually for deepening in wisdom and compassion? They're countless. Our opportunities lie in the judgments that so frequently arise. The opportunities lie in relationship to the images that we cling to about who we are and about who other people are. The opportunities lie in relationship to the fears and the doubts that arise. The opportunities lie in our relationship to the person beside us who distracts us, who would be a much nicer fellow meditator if they would just be quiet. 
our opportunities lie in relationship to all of those situations in the moment, in the day where we find ourselves withdrawing, withdrawing in some way, distancing ourselves in some way. The path of the Bodhisattva is really about learning how to open our hearts to all of this, to actually wake up to the actuality that there is no other place for wisdom and compassion but that moment that we're in, that this is not going to be some kind of reward that comes at the end of a retreat or later on in our lives. It's really waking up to the fact that the things that we judge, the people that we judge, they are ourselves in a different form, in different circumstances that the things that we judge about ourselves are not who we truly are. The path of wisdom and compassion is not one of struggling to find the right actions and the right words. Don't make decisions about compassion. If we make decisions about compassion, I think we'd probably stop being compassionate. The right actions, the words, the responses can only be born of a heart that is awake and that is open. Now in the Mahayana tradition, the Bodhisattva path is called the Great Vehicle. It is called the Great Vehicle because actually it asks so much of us. It actually asks us to extend ourselves in such powerful ways to open ourselves in such powerful ways. It is not, therefore, called or said to be a path with a lukewarm or the spiritually indifferent, because it is demanding. The path of the Bodhisattva is said to be the great vehicle because it asks us to be endlessly and unconditionally giving, allowing, and generous. It asks us to be endlessly and unconditionally forgiving and loving and willing to let go. Now sometimes when we think of what that means in our life, all those people we have to forgive, you know, all of those situations that we would rather kind of turn away from, all of those times when it's more interesting to hold on to things, all of those times when it's more safe to hide in images, we might think, well, this is too hard. This is just too hard. This is not a path for an ordinary person. But it's actually much harder and much more painful not to live in this way. Generosity and letting go and forgiveness and love, they bring only joy and warmth and freedom to our lives. The absence of them brings only pain, anger, denial, holding, resentment, self-centeredness. They bring only conflict and limitation. These are the basic lessons we are asked to learn in our lives. What actually brings joy and what brings sorrow? What brings oneness and what brings separation? What brings freedom and what brings limitation? These are the lessons we are asked to learn in our lives, 
in our meditation, in ourselves. It is when we are really willing to learn these lessons that compassion really begins to emerge. There are, I think, four ingredients to compassion which are fairly essential. They require a sudden reflection and a certain calmness. They are the ingredients of imagination, of equanimity, of wisdom, and of courage. These are the kind of foundations of compassion. Now, we can never, ever actually know fully another person's experience and what it feels like to them. Nor can anyone else, no matter how loving or how much empathy they have, actually know, actually experience what pain feels like to us, what suffering, what loss actually feels like to us. And that doesn't mean that there is an uncrossable divide between ourselves and another person. This is where the creativity of imagination actually comes in. Imagination bridges gaps. Now the imagination, it may seem strange to speak about imagination and meditation when we're talking about seeing actuality and seeing things as they are. Imagination is not about fantasy, it's not about conjuring up mental images or artificial responses. Rather, imagination, I feel, is a kind of creativity and flexibility within us, an openness of heart that actually allows us to receive, to receive the pain of others, to receive pain from within ourselves, without any kind of judgment, preoccupation, without any kind of ideas or prejudice about it. It's a creative faculty that actually enables us to extend the horizons of our consciousness so that when we see, when we listen, when we perceive within ourselves, we are just still. We are just totally still and are able in that stillness to acknowledge the interconnectedness. There's a sense of our common humanity the universality of pain, of sorrow, and of joy. Something I'd like to read to you that came from a, an experience uh, in a hospice in America. There was a woman who came into the hospital in a very contracted state. The nurses called her a bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All that she didn't want or could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone in a great deal of pain. She had judged so many so often that even her children would not visit. For six weeks her isolation and pain increased until one night she came to a, a point when she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. At 4 a.m., feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. Never had it been so clear how her intense holdings had created such intense pain. 
Feeling death approach, she remembered herself as a youngster, open and hungry for the world. She saw how she'd closed down over the years. With a sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her, and exhausted, unable to fight another moment, she surrendered, let go, and died into her life, into the moment. <coughs> Letting go into the pain in her spine and legs, she began to sense, quite beyond reason, that she was somehow not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the 10,000 in pain. She began to experience all the other beings who at that very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. There arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, lying on her side with a starving child suckling at her empty breast. She became this Ethiopian woman, dying in the mud. There arose the experience of an Eskimo woman dying during childbirth and dying the same death. Image after image arose. She was dying, each dying beside the others. She experienced the 10,000 sufferings simultaneously. The pain was beyond bearing, she said. I couldn't stand it any longer and something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it just, just wasn't my pain. It was the pain. It wasn't just my life, it was all life. It was life itself. As the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience, Hazel's heart opened more and more to all the others in pain at the hospital. She asked after them. And the room became a place where the nurses would come on their break because it was a room of love. Her children came to visit because of the warmth and surrender of her phone calls, responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sitting on her bed, the grandchildren she'd never met, the heart she had rejected before they were born. For several weeks before her death, her room became a place of healing, of finished business, of universal care. Hazel's was one of the most remarkable healings we have ever seen. This is what we mean by the quality of imagination. The pain is somehow beyond the restrictions of me and mine. That somehow to be locked within me and mine isolates us from the universality of pain. I think sometimes we recognize this in our experience in meditation. When we can experience pain as just pain, that it's not mine, that we acknowledge things that we feel within ourselves, the fears, the sorrows, the anxieties, the doubts, that when we strip away the outer details of our lives, the disguises, that we know that fear is just fear, that pain is just pain, that sorrow is sorrow, no matter in whom, in whose experience it arises. Out of that, there comes a compassion which is actually not concerned with solutions. It is not concerned with solutions. And out of that, too, arises passion. Passion is part of compassion. Passion that moves us to respond, to serve, to give, to heal, to support. Passion energizes our capacity to feel to find forms, to find forms in words, in actions, in spirit, in connections. 
a certain quality of heart and consciousness which is so intrinsic to compassion is equanimity now equanimity is not about distance it's not about being removed in the Tibetan tradition there's a, a lama who described equanimity as being equally near to all things and I think this wonderful description not to be apart but to be equally near to all things equanimity is important in compassion because some of the greatest hindrances to compassion are aversion and attachment when there's aversion for anything inwardly or outwardly our response is to close our hearts to turn away from to close our eyes to distance ourselves from things that offend us or threaten us or that we dislike and then compassion is absent attachment we operate differently we want to defend we want to protect we want things to continue but we have investment and again compassion is hindered we need the equanimity really to appreciate the subjectivity of our own aversions and attachments otherwise we live in a world of enemies and allies and to live in a world of enemies and allies of friends and strangers within those dualities and separations it is really so difficult to feel compassion it takes immense openness immense equanimity to let go of our labels of the subjectivity of our reactions and yet this letting go my teacher once said to me that the greatest act of compassion you can have for yourself is to let go because to let go is to open into freedom into what is free the third quality is quality of courage it is not easy for us to stay with pain to open to pain avoidance is such a more attractive option to distance ourselves to numb ourselves not to feel because sometimes it's so painful to feel and courage is really required of us the willingness not to move away but to go forward to extend ourselves sometimes we're fearful because we doubt our capacity to accommodate pain takes immense courage to stay with that which is painful without indulging in any kind of fantasies about fixing it about finding a solution about having an answer but just allowing ourselves to receive pain pain of others our own pain without any kind of in investment or demand that this pain will somehow come to a result that is acceptable to us out of courage that willingness to extend there arises the care and the love of compassion compassion also requires wisdom to see beyond the superficial our judgments about right and wrong about acceptable and unacceptable 
will always separate the world and will always fragment ourselves. And in that separation and that fragmentation, compassion is so suffocated because judgment always reinforces distance, it reinforces separation. How honestly can we ever pass judgment upon suffering? How can we ever honestly pass judgment upon suffering? And most of that in our world, which is unwholesome, which is misguided, which is destructive, arises out of suffering. There must be a point, I feel, in our life, in our meditation, where there's a willingness to set aside the conditions for compassion. Otherwise, compassion so often stays hidden to us. When there is no conditions for compassion, there's also no reinforcing separation. Compassion teaches us about the emptiness of self. And this is one of the most liberating aspects, most liberating powers of compassion. It teaches us about the emptiness of division, the emptiness of self. It inspires us to be present, to be awake, knowing that we are only, only when we are ever awake do we ever see through the veils of separation rather than believing in them. And when we see through the veils of separation, then we know we see ourselves in different forms all around us. And when that respond in that in the face of that kind of interconnectedness, that depth of interconnectedness, the response that arises from our hearts is the response of compassion. May all beings free from sorrow. May all beings be free from separation. May all beings live with compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.